0: As we join Dave Wurtson, our Truth Encounter study leader, he takes us back to a gathering that took place about 300 years before Christ. The Jewish people had returned to their homeland from Babylon. They had read the book of Deuteronomy, and they decided it was time to reinstitute the Feast of the Tabernacles, in which they camped out for a week for God. Here is the beginnings of camp meetings and spiritually directed getaways. Listen and think about how you respond to the worship services you are a part of. Almost every single time when we gather together, somebody opens this book, we read a little bit, and then we explain it. We try to help you to understand what it's saying, and then we want to celebrate. Because following this pattern, as we hear the Word of God and we're convicted in our hearts, and we receive the Lord's forgiveness, and we're renewed in our relationship together, then we can party, and we can celebrate, and we can have a good time. And unbelievers should be attracted to that joy and celebration of forgiveness that we have. And that's what happened in what we call the post-exilic community of Israel. Now I want to move down in time to the final time in Scripture that we have a specific example of a people celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. It's in the first century. It's a very moving time because the book of Zechariah predicted that the Messiah would come and he would purge the nations. And at the end of Zechariah chapter 14, it says at the end of time, all the world is going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It says the Egyptians are going to come up from the south. It says that the Elamites are going to come from the east. Everyone's going to come and celebrate the Feast of of tabernacles. Now, in our Lord's Day, turn to John chapter 7. This time we switch and look at John chapter 7. Let's look at this final celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, after this, Jesus went around Galilee, John chapter 7, verse 1, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were lying in wait to take his life. So we have like an omniscience it's like an Agatha Christie mystery story. There is a murderer on the loose that wants to snuff out the life of Jesus Christ. You say, Dave, I thought we were talking about religious celebrations. I thought we were talking about forgiveness and love, and I thought this was the people of God. Yeah, now 400 years have gone by, and I want you to start to see what's happened to the so-called people of God. It says, but when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, that's the feast we're talking about, this feast where they all camped out for about eight days. It says, but when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, you ought to leave here and you ought to go down to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers didn't believe in him. You know, this chapter, in fact, the whole Gospel of John... ...is like having a word video... ...of getting up close and personal... ...with the personal life of Jesus Christ... ...and his ministry in the first century. And it begins with a paragraph... ...that highlights one of the most difficult things... ...for anyone to take. It's your own family... ...your own brothers... ...your own own siblings that don't believe in you. And I want you just to take away as we, as we have this final vignette of the Feast of Tabernacles, I want you to just pretend that you don't know that much about Jesus right now, that you haven't made that decision to believe in him. And I want you to pretend like you're back there in the first century. Maybe you, some of you can pretend you're Jesus' brothers and you've grown up with this older brother and he's a lot different than you. He, his mom and dad never have to yell at him. They never have to spank him. I mean, the guy never does anything wrong. And then he starts to do some nutty things. You know, as he goes into young manhood, it comes out, he's able to do miracles. Like he goes to a wedding. They run out of wine, and he makes wine appear out of water jars that are smacked full. And then he goes around, you know, and he meets someone that's deaf, and he touches their ear, and they can hear And word begins to spread like wildfire about this miracle, wonder-working kind of a guy. And yet, unlike the faith healers of our day, he doesn't get articles in the paper. He doesn't make announcements throughout the media. He doesn't have great big mass rallies. We have no posters put up all over the city of Jerusalem saying, Come see the great faith healer of our time. First century, designated by John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God. Come and hear him speak. And they all gather in their tents. No. This guy's strange for someone that's trying to create a movement. It's an incredible. If you do the real thing, if you do the real thing, it spreads like wildfire and people find out about it. If you don't do the real thing, all the publicity in the world won't make it fly, although we think it will. But Jesus' brothers are talking from a very human standpoint. They're saying, listen, if you're going to be the next Billy Graham of the first century, you'll get the idea... You know, we don't believe in you. We think it's all, you know, you're just our brother. But if you're going to go on this crackpot profit career, if you're going to be this religious kind of a guy, at least do it right. That's the idea here. You'll feel it. Jesus said something really incredible. Notice what Jesus says. Verse 6. Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time will do. Any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify what it does is evil. The Lord Jesus is the one person that will totally expose the fraud of each one of our hearts. There's no conning with him. There's no razzmatazz with him. There's no hype with him. And you can see it in his words right now. He says, the world isn't hate you, my brothers, because you never said anything bad about what the world is doing. The world in this, in this context represents the world of unbelief, the world that's controlled by the kingdom of darkness that wants to believe a lie and does not want to come to the truth. Jesus said, you go to the feast, but I am not yet going up to this feast because for me the right time is not yet coming. These words are loaded. He's saying this is not going to be the time when I die on the cross. This is not going to be the time when I conquer death. And this is not going to be the time when I go up. When Jesus talked about going up, it's not going up to Jerusalem. It's going up to heaven. It's the words that are used in the ascension. The same phrase is used for Jesus ascending to his Father in heaven. So all these words have a double meaning in a pure, godly, spiritual sense. And, that, and his brothers have no idea what Jesus is really talking to them about. Look at verse 10. However, after his brothers had left the feast... He went up also, not publicly, but in secret. He just went up quietly, without any big showbiz techniques. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching him, and now we have the villains come back in. These would be the Jewish leaders, not all the Jewish people. Many of them are going to respond to him. But the religious leaders of his day have a plot against his life. It says the Jews, they were watching for him, and they were asking, where is this man? Because they want to seize him to kill him. Now, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. And you can get a feel for the kind of impact that the first century reality of the earthly Jesus brought upon a crowd. Some of them were saying, he's a good man. So you can hear them in the crowd. Some of them are saying, he's a good man. Others reply, no, he isn't. He deceives the people. He's turning us away from the way our leaders say we should interpret the law of Moses. How could he be a good man? And you can hear him say, how could he heal a man the Sabbath? How could he break the Levitical Sabbath laws and what the Pharisees teach? And somebody else says, well, man, I've been wondering about the way they interpret the law anyway. And this debate is going back and forth. Not until halfway through the feast, Jesus waited until about the third or fourth day of the feast. Remember, it goes for eight days. So about the third or fourth day, Jesus went up to the temple and he began to teach. Notice how the crowd reacted. The Jews at the feast were amazed. And they ask, they scratch their head, how did this guy get such learning without ever having gone to Dallas Seminary or SMU Theological Seminary? Or in this case, it would be the rabbinical schools of New York. And he didn't have any rabbinical training. And they're saying, how in the world does he speak like this? Notice what Jesus says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, now this is an incredible statement. I want every one of you to know this. If you choose to do the will of God, now I meet all kinds of people that say, oh, I love God and I pray to God and I think God's a great person and yeah, I would want to live with him forever. You know, a whole lot of that, a lot of that is a bunch of baloney because the objective reality of their life is they don't really talk to God except when they're in really bad trouble. They don't ever read the Word of God. The last time they looked at the Word of God was centuries ago. We have a lot of talk, I really love the Word of God. But I want you to really, Jesus is a man of truth and he says, anyone, if anyone chooses to do God's will, Arab, Islamic person, Jewish person, Hindu person, Roman Catholic person, Bible church person, Protestant person, anyone who really does choose to do the will of God, he will find out. What will he find out? He will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is absolutely nothing false about him. In other words, if I teach you to build my career, if I am in this religious thing because I want to get a bigger church and I want to have more influence and I, and I want people to give me a bigger salary, in other words, if I am in this for my career, then I will lie to you. And some of you have been lied to in your religious upbringing. You never were really taught the truth of the word. And some of the reasons why you were not taught that is the person that was teaching you was constantly evaluating what they were saying based upon the way the power people in his congregation will respond. I wish that weren't true, but it is. And it can be a temptation for me. And all oh, how you need to pray that we will never, never fall victim to preaching for the crowd? In fact, across the United States today, there's a whole lot of preachers that are constantly asking, how's the crowd going to react? The question I ask is, how's God going to react? What's it going to be like when I stand before the Lord, and the Lord says, Dave, I gave you a tongue. I gave you ideas. When you read my word, my spirit gave you ideas that my people needed to give, that they really needed to get into their hearts. Why didn't you tell them it? Why didn't you just pour it out to them? Why don't you let your own life be affected by that? I'm really serious about that. That's a, it's an incredible responsibility to do what I'm doing. And the Lord goes right to the heart of the matter. The spiritual teacher that's teaching for his own success, preaching for moving up within his denomination or moving up within his religious group, that man will never tell you the truth. Because the chips will soon be down and it will be choice. I tell the people the truth. The word of God cuts right across our lives, right across our thoughts, right across our traditions. And we need to be like we learned in the time of Ezra where all the people cried. Because the word of God broke us and cut us in half and exposed what we really were. And Jesus is saying, I'm that kind of a teacher. That's the kind of a man Jesus is and that's the one I want to follow. He was a man that was never influenced what anybody thought. He always tells, King Herod, Pilate, common people, Nicodemus, it's always the same, the truth. The man that the more I study his word, the more I know, this man spoke like this chapter closes. This man spoke like no other man. And now he exposes the wrestling of the people. Notice how the people respond to, them, respond to him. He says to this in verse 18, He who speaks in his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? That's why we're studying the book of Deuteronomy, so you'll know that Moses has given you the law. Yet not one of you keeps the law. And I can see all these Jewish audience saying, we do keep the law. What do you think we're down here with the Feast of Tabernacles? And then Jesus reads the, the pulse beat of what's happening in the city of Jerusalem. He says, why are you trying to kill me? Now what I want you to feel, and you can study this passage more on your own, so you, because this chapter is incredibly dramatic. I want you to feel the tremendous conflict of you've got all these people, very religious, you've got the priests coming down in their long flowing robes, you've got sacrifices, you've got ram's horns being blown, you've got unleavened... bread. I mean, you've got everything religious within the Jewish system that's imaginable. All these people have gathered together to be really religious and the Son of God goes up there secretly in the middle of the feast and he starts to speak to the people. You know what he tells them? He says... You're disobeying the law of Moses. They say, no, we're not. We don't budge on the Sabbath day. We don't take another step than our Pharisees tell us. And Jesus says, that's fine. You really keep the Sabbath well. In fact, his audience, as a chapter develops, says, Jesus, why did you heal a man this Sabbath? You made a deaf man well on the Sabbath. You made blind people well on the Sabbath. In fact, you go out of your way to break the Sabbath laws. You heal people. You almost wait to the Sabbath to heal people. And Jesus says to them this, Moses lets you circumcise a little child, a little baby, a little infant boy on the eighth day, and if it comes on the Sabbath, you do it. He says, why don't you understand the intent of God's law? If there can be an exception to make a little baby a covenant child, then why can't I cleanse the whole body? Why can't I forgive somebody? Why can't I bring healing to their entire body on the Sabbath day? And like the ultimate interpreter of the law that he was, he goes right to the heart. He says, you need to not, not judge according to appearances. You need to understand the heart of God's rules and the heart of his regulation. And that's the way Jesus taught And I want you to see the tremendous conflict. The crowd that's quibbling about whether or not you heal on the Sabbath, the crowd that's quibbling with Jesus because his disciples eat grain without washing their hands right in the Sabbath... That very crowd is being enmeshed in a plot to snuff out an innocent man's life. And I want you to see the power of that evil that's in my life and that's in your life. And only the word of God is an x-ray gun, is an MRI that's strong enough to show you that you can be mouthing hymns and you can be playing instruments to the glory of God, and you can be even speaking in his name, and your heart can be filled with murderous anger and murderous jealousy and hate. Well, the festival goes on, and this back and forth, this debate goes on, and you can read more about the debate. But near the last part of the day, the greatest day, it's probably the seventh day. The eighth day was kind of a rest period, but the seventh day was like the climax of the feast. And I want you to look at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice. Now, let me set the tone for you. What happened is every single day of the Feast of Tabernacles, remember it's a rain festival, not an Indian rain dance, but it is a rain festival. In fact, even in modern Israel today with all the conflict between the Arabs and the Jews, you know, the Arabs still look because they know the Jews pray for rain on the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Arabs watch and really are praying with them that soon after the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, there will be rain because then they'll know they'll be able to have refreshing drinks of water and they will be able to have productivity for their crops. Now, in the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, every day of the feast, the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam that was fed by the Gion Spring to the southwest of the tabernacle, the temple, they would go down and they would take a beautiful vessel and they would fill it with water, like this. Then there would be a great procession. The people would wave their willow branches, their palm branches, and all the different branches they had. They would sing, they would dance, they would sing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And all, it was great festive. The girls would be dancing and it'd be great celebration. They'd bring this vessel full of water up into the temple. They would go to the altar, which remember is before the Holy of Holies and the open court there where they offered the sacrifices. And on the temple there would be a horn where you could pour the water to cleanse off the altar. And they would pour this water, which I won't this morning, but they would pour, like this was the altar, they would pour the water down into this thing. And the idea was, it was kind of an expression of, Lord, please continue to send us the Gion Spring and the Pool of Siloam and be sure that all of our tanks are filled for the coming year. Jesus stands up at this point as the priest is pouring the water and all the people are thinking about the need for water and the refreshment that water brings. And Jesus says this, he shouts out, he stands up and cries. What a moment it must have been. If anyone is thirsty... Let them come to me and drink. What an incredible statement. Is anybody thirsty? Jesus stands up. He's still doing this to all the world. Jesus stands up in the midst of the parchment of our soul. And he says, is anyone thirsty? And I want to say every one of you, as you think about what's going on in your life, are you beginning to add everything up and coming up with zero? Zero. Are you saying, you know, man, I have worked all my life and I plugged at this and I plugged at that and I, I thought that I'd finish my training and I'd get that job and everything would be fine? And you realize, man, my soul really inside, I am spiritually thirsty. I'm just dry as a cucumber. Some of you might say, man, I poured myself into this religious thing. Man, I have taught Sunday school classes and I have tried to reach children. Man, I've worked in Awana for the last 2,600 years. And I have dealt with screaming kids and puking kids and diarrhea-filled kids and everything you can imagine. I've dealt with rebellious kids and sensitive kids. Man, I have really tried to do this religious thing. But deep in your soul, the Lord stands up and says, are you thirsty? I want to share something with you. All the work in church will never satisfy your thirst. And you can switch over to the Baptist church and you can give all the money you want. And you can go to church every time the door is open. Or you can become a Roman Catholic or you can go anywhere you want to. But all the religion in the world... It's not going to deal with the parchment of your soul, the dryness of your soul. And Jesus stood up and said, Is your soul thirsty? He says this Whoever believes in me, anyone who rests upon me, anyone who will really trust me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water, streams of living water will flow from within him. In other words, you won't have to rely upon the rain from the outside. You won't have to rely upon always being in the right environment, always having somebody else to spoon feed you, always having somebody else to crank you up. You're going to be able to have your own private individual fountain of living water. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to live right inside your soul and I'm going to be like a bubbling brook that you can let it well up within your soul. He says, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive, which happened at Pentecost. It happens in our life when we believe. Up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The crowd, when they heard those words, some of them said he must be the Christ. The officers that the Jewish high priest had sent to arrest, Jesus said, no one ever spoke like this man. A whole lot of them just followed the plot of the Jews, and a few months, really about a year and a half later, probably, they crucified the Son of God. But in that crowd that day, when Jesus stood up and said, Are any of you thirsty? There were some of the people that said yes. And he said, If you will believe in me, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I want to tell you, that's the most precious possession of my life as I close today. The most precious possession of my life is that we've been able to gather together as a group of those that believe. And I've got a fountain of living water that's welling up in my soul. A couple of days ago I sat with a couple when Truth Encounter came on the air December 21st. They were living in North Carolina and they started listening and the fountain of living water started encouraging them, welling up in their soul. They were two kids that were raised in pretty godly, you know, kind of spiritual homes. They learned all the right stuff, all the right answers. But they went away to the University of North Carolina, and they got all swept away by the tidal wave of the world system. Man, they were involved in immorality. They got involved in drugs. They just got really away from the Lord. But then some campus crusade guys and some other godly people on campus began to show them the difference that there's a group of believers that don't just talk about Jesus, but there's a group of people that really obey Jesus. And my friend was describing to me, Dave, I began to realize as a young college student that there was those that really sought to live like Christ through his power, and their lives were really different. And then there was a group that just talked about it. They even went to church because North Carolina is still in the Bible Belt. They went to church and everything else, but there was no difference in their life. And I decided that I'm going to start being obedient. He started meeting with some other believers who could hold him accountable. He began studying this book, and he said, Man alive, when Truth Encounter came on the air, it was like a, a big meal that I could have every single day. And he said, We started to grow. The Lord brought his wife through that same kind of a journey. She was a sweet kid. She looks like the sweetest Sunday school girl you'd ever meet, but she got swept away by the tidal wave as well. But the Lord brought these two young people together when they started to drink again and let that well of living water well up within them. The Lord brought them together, and now they're now married. The Lord took them after they graduated out in a career, and then the Lord began to really tug at their heart, and they, wanted, they really wanted to go into full-time Christian service, and they were studying. The reason I was with them last week is they decided to take a year off, and they're studying the Word of God, and these kids, the tears would just roll down their eyes, As they talked about the tremendous contrast between being at the University of North Carolina in darkness and in disobedience and turning away from the Lord. And then they started to obey. And as they held hands together, the young couple, they said, We just want to give our lives to bring this incredible news about Jesus in other people's lives. And just to see the power of God to reach and touch a university couple and begin to work at their life. You know, that's your story. That's what should be happening all around. And I want you to realize that Jesus is still standing up, and he says, are you thirsty? Are your friends thirsty? If you really want to know God, you're eventually going to come to the fountain of living water, and you're going to find refreshment and a bubbling spring for your soul.